Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic Sea Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by coronatools.com, the nation's leader in garden and landscaping tools. Listeners of the Organic View can receive 20% off their coronatools.com purchase by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. For more promotional offers, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. And don't forget to check out our contest section. On today's show, Tom and I are going to talk to beekeeper, author, and bee health advocate, Mr. Ross Conrad, about news from the University of Guelph, which claims that if used correctly, neonicotinoids do not adversely affect honeybee colonies. First, I'd like to welcome to the show my co-host, Colorado beekeeper, Mr. Tom Theobald. Hello, Tom. Well, hello, June. We uh, had a little blast of cold air from the north last night, but we've had some record highs, and the bees have been out working, and interestingly, even bringing in a little yellow pollen, which I think has to be coming from the dandelions. They're here and there. An admirable plant. You know, most people try to get rid of them, but they're so important in the environment. So the bees are snuggled up today. It's in the 40s, so... And the beekeeper is, too. Thanks, Tom. And joining us today from the cold, wintry mountains of Vermont is Mr. Ross Conrad. Good afternoon, Ross, and thank you for joining us. Hi, June. Hi, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And unfortunately, we don't have a a, a warm snap here. It's, It's pretty cold, and the bees are all snuggled in their hives. Yeah, we're pretty lucky out here. Ross, can you take a moment and just talk about your beekeeping operation and how long you've been a beekeeper? Oh, I've been keeping bees for about 25 years now. Um, I I like to keep it uh, human scale, as I put it, you know, manageable. I like to run my business and not have it run me, so I just keep about 100 hives. And I do some nucleus colonies and produce some honey and wax. And uh, mainly I try to educate people. I try to spread the gospel of organic beekeeping whenever possible. Thank you, Ross. Now let's talk about this news from the University of Guelph. Apparently these findings were described in five papers that were published earlier this month by Keith Solomon, who's a toxicologist and emeritus professor with the School of Environmental Sciences and adjunct professor Gladys Stevenson in the Journal of Toxicology and Environmental Health B. Apparently, there are 170 unpublished studies that were analyzed, and apparently these studies were studies from Syngenta and Bayer that had been submitted to regulatory agencies, and they included 64 papers that were peer-reviewed on this particular topic. So my first question to both of you is, do either of you know who was on this peer-review list? Who do you want to go first? Go ahead, Ross. Well, I, I tried. I tried to find out. I went online, and uh, unfortunately, the study is hidden behind a paywall, and so you can only get access to the entire paper by, you know, paying a bunch of money. And 
So, right, that's that's unfortunate. Um, So I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, you could probably find out who the, the peers were. What we found, though, in the last 10 or 15 years is that the peers have been corrupted. And so peer review used to be uh, a mark that gave you confidence in the quality of the paper or the research. And uh, it's a little less uh, clear today. The, the peer system has been corrupted just like everything else. This was not, what we're talking about was not actually a study. It's just a literature search, and the chemical companies have done this repeatedly. I did a little research before the the program, and uh, I found one similar, 1915, another one in August of uh, 2015, another one in 2016, now this one. And interestingly enough, uh, papers like this are an indication that they're worried. This is corporate propaganda. They're trying to confuse people. They're trying to to dismiss the concerns. And were I a scientist, I would be embarrassed to have my name attached to this. I don't know. I think Ross would probably agree. But the science community should take these people to task because this is just poorly done and is completely out of keeping with the avalanche of science that we've seen. My next question is for Tom. Can you please address the infamous leaked memo? The leaked memo, that was my 15 minutes of fame. I became the Colorado beekeeper who received the leaked memo. And I began to be concerned about the neonicotinoids and the effect they were having on my bees oh, probably 2004 or 2006, somewhere in there. And uh, I came upon, I I started looking for uh, a research study that had been the condition upon which clothianidin had been given a registration, a conditional registration called the Life Cycle Study. And... I criticized it in an article that I did for Bee Culture magazine in July of 2010, and Colty had been on the market since 2003. Well, that year, uh, Bayer came back to the EPA and asked for an additional approval for the use of Colty on mustard and cotton. And the EPA scientists and I believe in part because of the article that I had written, they took another look at the life cycle study, commonly referred to as the Cutler-Dupree study. And what they concluded was that this study, this study which had been the condition for the registration of clothianidin in 2003, had since been used on hundreds of millions of acres, their conclusion was that that study was invalid. Well, <laughs> that's pretty strong uh, commentary coming from the EPA scientists, and it didn't last too long with the EPA management. It was a little too rich for their blood because they're trying to please their chemical handlers. And the, ultimately, the conclusion was that that study was supplemental. And basically, you can read supplemental as irrelevant. 
Well, I got a call just before Thanksgiving and from a, a person I knew in the EPA who was keeping me informed and said, Tom, you ought to be the first to know, and went on to explain what the scientists had concluded in response to this request for further registration of clothianidin. And I said, well, has it been documented? And this person said, yes. And I asked if I could have a copy. That was the infamous leaked memo, which revealed what the EPA scientists had, had found. And it wasn't really leaked. It was a public document. The EPA wasn't about to publicize it. And the only reason I got it is because I asked for it. But that was the leaked memo. And... Uh, that was the beginning of this odyssey for me. And it just seems to go on and on and on. And Ross has done an excellent series of articles on some of these questions. Maybe he can expand upon that a little bit more himself. Well, it's interesting that you talk about clothianidin and this leaked memo, what was involved, because it states that, according to this analysis, Solomon said that the original papers varied in quality and scientific rigor, but the results generally showed no adverse effects of pesticides on honeybee hives. So, Ross, could you take a moment and share your expertise as far as the impact of clothianidin on honeybee colonies? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a beekeeper. I'm not a scientist, uh, but I did have the privilege of serving on the Vermont Pollinator Protection Committee, uh, one of two beekeeper representatives to come up with a pollinator protection plan for the state of Vermont. So uh, we spent about six months um, pouring over issues around pollinators, and and most of that time ended up being spent on, on the issue of, of pesticides, which it turns out is uh, probably not only one of the major issues, but more con contentious of, of the issues um, that we have to deal with in trying to keep pollinators healthy. And, um, you know, this study, it does, uh, I, I would tend to agree, I think, with what Tom was saying earlier, that um, it, it basically, they, they conducted a weight of evidence assessment, and they admit that the vast majority, over two-thirds, of the, the studies they looked at were unpublished, non-peer-reviewed, and, and they were conducted by the chemical companies themselves who have a serious conflict of interest um, when they do studies. And one of the things I found while serving on the Pollinator Protection Committee was that almost every time you find a study that shows that the neonicotinoids are not harmful or it's not clear uh, whether they're harmful to pollinators, it's almost always uh, has it almost always has involvement of the industry. Either they fund it, or they conduct it themselves, or they consult on the study, or, or something. Whereas almost every time you find a study that shows uh, harm and serious concern, uh, it, it, those are the independent studies where the industry is not involved, and so. Being that this study um, that just came out in the Journal of Toxicology and Environmental Health B uh, was totally funded by the industry, um, it's not surprising that they found and concluded that these pesticides have no harm to honeybees. 
despite the fact that that totally flies in the face of common sense, these are insecticides, highly, highly toxic, hypertoxic uh, to insects. They work, you know, uh, clothiamidin, in fact, is about 10,000 times as toxic to insects as DDT. And surprise, <laughs> for those of you who aren't aware, honeybees are insects. So to claim that these pesticides have no effect on an insect, which they're designed and well-designed to kill, um, is ridiculous. Um, and, and what got me is that towards the end, the researchers did what, what all, they're all doing now. Just they're taking a page from the tobacco industry and they're trying to point the fingers elsewhere, right? So they talk about the fact that, you know, good agricultural practices are so important um, because if they're used properly, then, then you don't have problems, as if the pesticide's not the problem. It's maybe the farmer that's not doing things right. Or they uh, talk about the potential other harmful factors, you know, moving colonies long distances for pollination. They talk about mite issues or viruses or the weather or insufficient food or what have you. You know, they, they just try to distract from the real issue here, the, the elephant in the room, which is these neonicotinoid pesticides. Over the years, Tom and I have addressed this very subject, how it is clearly a play out of the tobacco industry and so many other industries where they're trying to divert attention from the actual culprit, which are the chemicals in this situation. And mm -hmm. if you look back at some of the research that's been conducted, especially I want to refer to research that was conducted by Dr. Hank Tenekes from the, the Netherlands, in which he did a study about the time-dose ratio, and that's a study that's never been negated. And basically it concludes that once a certain dosage has been reached, death is imminent. And that is a very scary reality. Well, he saw that he saw that relationship because of the experience that he had with cancer. And uh, what they found is that there is no safe dose for these neonicotinoids, that the effect on the synapses is cumulative and irreversible. And if you introduce the element of time, a fraction of what it would take for an acute kill will produce the same end result, which is death. And, uh, the chemical companies have done everything they can to stay away from that. Um, there is no safe dose for these chemicals, and the environmental poisoning has been massive. And I'm, I'm sure that Ross has seen that, and many others have seen that, but not enough. Even many of the people who are involved in these issues have yet to grasp the enormity of this poisoning. I was just, as Tom was talking, I was thinking about how the, it's pretty clear from the science that the wild pollinators, the native pollinators, are being seriously impacted. Um, what's not as clear is that honeybees are being impacted because, you know, uh, in, just in the last 10 years, for example, the number of hives in the United States that are managed has actually risen and not decreased. And so... Uh, it creates an opportunity and a question, you know, why, if these chemicals are so harmful, why are beehive numbers going up? And that is because 
uh, honeybees seem to be buffered from the effects of these neonicotinoids in two primary ways. One is, you know, a honeybee hive has 20, 30, 40,000 bees in it typically. And so if uh, half of the bees, you know, five, 10,000 bees get wiped out from exposure, you still got 10 or 20,000 20, bees in that hive. And so the hive continues. It's not as strong or as vibrant as the other hives. It's not building up like a beekeeper would expect. And, and unfortunately, beekeepers have gotten very used to hives that kind of fail to thrive and just kind of putter along and don't do that great. But the other way the bees are being buffered by the effects of these pesticides is through beekeepers themselves. Um, because we know the neonicotinoids, when, when bees are exposed, their, their immune systems are compromised. They become much more vulnerable to pathogens and diseases. And when bees get diseases, you know, a good beekeeper is there to, to treat and take care of them. Um, we know that the neonicotinoids impact, negatively impact the ability of bees to forage for pollen and nectar that they use in the hive to, to turn into honey. And uh, we, you know, when a hive doesn't have enough food, the good beekeeper steps in and feeds the hive. And so, you know, beekeepers are, are really working a lot more, spending a lot more money to deal with the pest issues and the disease issues and the nutrition issues that are all aggravated by the pesticide issue. Which, is, which in my mind makes the pesticide issue really the, the most important issue because it's not only an issue on its own, but it aggravates all the other problems that the bees have to deal with as well. And what's amazing to me is that of all the problems, uh, we're doing the least amount of, of uh, mitigation measures when it comes to pesticides. You know, we, we've got all kinds of treatments for diseases and treatments for pests, we're doing things to improve nutrition. We're bringing in uh, other genetics and, and to improve breeding. We're doing all these things. And yet when it comes to pesticides, what have we done in the last 10 years? You know, there's been some label language changes. Um, reviews are going on. Monitoring is going on. But nothing, no serious, any, anything seriously being done to reduce the exposure of bees to these pesticides. And that's why the rate of colony loss is so high consistently, much higher than it was uh, 10, 15 years ago. Thank you, Ross. I just want to point out that one of the constant arguments from industry is the fact that they keep claiming that the, it's the factors that are impacting the bees such as long-distance movement of colonies for crop pollination, as well as mites and viruses, weather insufficient food, and varying beekeeping practices. It's almost as if they would like to see the end of commercial migratory beekeeping. When you think about how many generations of commercial migratory beekeepers there have been, it's just preposterous that the blame is going on them, not on the chemicals that are causing the deaths of these colonies. Yep, it's, it's any, everybody's to blame except us. Well, I think the fundamental problem is we have absolutely no regulatory system. Mm. The portion of the EPA that we deal with, the Office of Pesticide Programs, is simply an extension of the chemical industry. That portion of the EPA uh, endorses their products, registers their products, and then for the next 20 or 30 years runs interference for their chemical handlers 
to keep these things on the market. I was talking with a friend, and maybe we're getting a little too far off, but I was talking with a friend recently, and I said, how much moral separation is there between shooting people anonymously from a 32nd floor window and condemning people to all sorts of diseases and tumors and ailments knowingly that are going to affect them down down the road. To promote these products, I think, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think we need to think very carefully about what we're doing to the world and what we're doing to ourselves. And particularly now, what it appears we're doing to the children with these poisons. Well, Tom, I think you bring up a really good point. The The current regulatory environment really is just legal cover for these pesticide companies. Um, as you pointed out, that leaked memo that you got a hold of, it that they, they, they used to approve clothianidin originally, turned out to be scientifically invalid, and that's continuing. And that apparently has gone on for many, many years. It was, I think it was 2015, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, actually uh, due to a, a lawsuit filed by environmental groups and beekeepers, ruled that the EPA had to withdraw its approval for the uh, regulate, uh, the approval of uh, sulfoxiflor, which is a, another newer neonicotinoid family of, of pesticides. And in, in, the, in the ruling, the, the judge actually said that, you know, after looking at all the research and studies that was used to approve this chemical, the data wasn't there. They did not have... Uh, the appropriate data and, and enough data to actually show that it was going to be safe and ha had them withdraw that. And it turns out that throughout all the history of EPA's pesticide management, they have often, unfortunately, way too often, uh, going back into the, even into the 70s and 80s, approved pesticides with very little data or no data or data that was doctored just to provide legal cover so that they can say it's this scientific process and it's all regulated to give the appearance that, you know, people are looking out for, for the worst case scenarios. And in reality, it, it's really just a crapshoot and an experiment. And um, unfortunately, we're starting to reap the results. The fundamental responsibility of the EPA, and it's in their charter, is the uh, protection of the people and the environment against unreasonable risk. And instead of defending the environment and the people, what we find is that the EPA is devoting all of their resources to defending the chemicals. And I'm involved in a, as a plaintiff in a lawsuit that's approaching five years. And the EPA and what are called the interveners, which would be some of the chemical companies, have worked as best they can to prevent any change whatsoever. So the EPA is spending its time defending the chemicals. Now, something has to change here. This is, this is insanity. Yep. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate all of your time, but we actually are out of time. It was very nice talking to you, Ross, and I sincerely hope that you come back to share more of your views on the show. Yes, well, I look forward you. to some future conversations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both so much. It's been a pleasure.
Folks, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us at questions at theorganicview.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about neonicotinoids, please visit www.theorganicview.com forward slash neonicotinoids. There is a whole collection of interviews that I've done, that Tom and I have done together, that feature some of the world's top scientists that have conducted research on this very subject. Thank you for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic Food Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.